The Sports Career Podcast, episode 305, The Reality of Starting a Career in F1. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. Can I just say, this is the final episode of Season 7. So, if you are a loyal listener, I am truly thankful for your support over this year and over the last seven years. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome. I hope this podcast serves you well with regards to your sports career development. But most importantly, there are 300 more that can support you right now with regards to what you want to do in the sports industry. And finally, I wish you all, your family, an amazing Christmas and New Year. And the show will be back on Season 8 in January. But we're not done yet. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry. Especially if you have an interest with regards to working in events, but in particular F1. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Emily Foreman. Emily has over 13 years of experience working in the event industry across six different countries. Currently, she's the event operations manager for F1 Experiences, looking after the Paddock Club suites and fan events. So for that reason, it's such a joy to have Emily as a podcast special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Emily will share her event career journey and explain to you the reality of starting a career in F1. Emily, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Well, first of all, hi, everyone. And Ed, thanks so much for having me on. This has probably been a long time coming. (laughs) Um, My sports career journey actually hasn't been in effect that long. However, my experience in the events industry has spanned pretty much my whole career so I've been in Formula One it must be about just over two months now which I'm realizing having been in the industry makes me a veteran (laughs) Um, but uh, in terms of I feel like I've been here five minutes and it's been an absolute blast it's been a whirlwind Um, my journey into the sports industry it took me probably about a year of trial and error, rejections, all the good stuff that comes in that washing machine of job interviews and rejections and getting your hopes up and getting knocked back. So it was about a year. And then I kind of, not that I gave up, but I took took another role that wasn't in the sports industry while I kind of made, sat back, thought, right, how am I actually going to do this? And I took a maternity contract with another company and then I really just realigned and thought, how am I going to do this? And then actually, Ed, I met you. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I can't take can't take too much credit. I want to at least put a shout out to Tim Sylvie, which we'll go in a lot more detail. But just to paint the picture to the listeners, yeah. Go back to the event industry because this is vital. Like we are going to do a heck of a lot of decoding here because okay. Emily's been very modest and isn't having shared her LinkedIn journey of content creation which we'll talk about which she's killing it by the way 
but I want to just paint the picture. Like, if you don't mind, I'm not about ages here, but I remember when we first got connected, you're like, well, I'm quite old in this. And I was like, no, you're not. It's just this skill sets. But could you just paint the picture of your event journey? Because really quickly, I need to hog the mic a little bit because when I started in the sports industry, somebody told me, Ed, at the end of the day, the sports industry is a mega event industry. If it's leading to a launch of a campaign with a brand, if it's a Formula One race, you do the event, then there's the next Formula One race. Like everything's about events. So going back to my question, could you just go back in time of what inspired you to get in the event industry first? Like paint the picture for the listeners, please. Okay, well, I'm going to rewind 20 years um, to 18-year-old Emily. (laughs) And I'm just giving away my age there. Uh, I started a student events nightclub business. So I would go around with my best friend when I was 18. Um, We obviously liked going out clubbing and we would do themed nights in the nightclubs. And our job was to get people, students mainly, into the nightclubs of the town. So we would partner with um, alcohol brands. We'd get Jägermeister in to come and we'd do like a jungle night, make everyone dress up, run around, literally run around the town dressed in like cave women gear, like furry, you know, tiger print things and get all the students and the student towns excited about it. They would then come to the towns, we'd uh, the nightclubs, we'd organize the security, get like the Jägermeister people in and get them to do shots and the bar would take the money up. So yeah, the bar would take the money on the bar. We pay for security and then we take the money on the door. That's how my event industry, um, <laughs> I guess, started. Uh, but since then, I've kind of been in the corporate events industry. And that was when I was about 23, 24. I was in a global um, events organizer. And we used to do events all around the world, like oil and gas, pharma, very dry, not sexy content at all. But when I was 24, they gave me the opportunity. They sent me to Australia to go and work in a satellite office over there and start the events department. Now, I look back on those times and think, did I really do that at that age? Like, it seems like moving to a new country by myself, I was quite a bolshy young one, I guess. Like, I, I loved risk and I loved newness and I love adventure. But I think looking back on it, maybe... <laughs> If you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, that sort of era of like sales floor, and I'm not going to say too much here, but it was very, it was characterized a lot by that. (coughs) Excuse me. And as a 24 year old female, I had to go and hold my own in a room full of very confident males. So I guess at that age, I had to fake it till I made it and stand on my own two feet in front of, you know, salesmen that were selling the moon on a stick to clients. And then I had to sort of interject, reshuffle the pack, start a team, start a department and straighten things out. So I guess that really, um, that really stood me instead. It was character building, definitely character building. And then um, about a year and a half after that, with about four other people, I co-founded an events advisory business in Sydney. um, And that was really what I see as a jewel in my CV and my career in terms of making who I am as a woman today, my confidence, my skill set, having when you're working a startup, and I use this phrase all the time, you just grab an oar and you row. And so whatever the business needs, whoever can do it will do it. So there were there were three other people, they did the sales, and I had to build the business operationally 
So I was doing, I was event, event director, operations director. I looked after HR. I looked after the company guidelines, um, budgeting, forecasting, um, looking after sponsorships, uh, sourcing venues, and then, you know, sales. And so I really feel like I, that seven years in that business <clears throat> really helped me tap into each part of a business. All, like every business has cogs and moving parts, and that's what makes everything up business so special. But having had experience from a young age, and I think I was about maybe 26, 26 at this time, I thought I was on top of the world. I was like, I could not believe I was in Sydney living my dream life. And yeah, I think that that really stood me in good stead to properly hone in on my events industry skills. Yeah, I think that's my career really grew from there. And I really because I held quite a high position in the company at a relatively young age. And my confidence was just very high, not in an arrogant way, but I know right now, if you put me on anywhere on the planet, I could run a world-class event for you. And I know that because I've had that experience, not much, there's not much you can throw at me if I'm running an event that will make me really sweat <laughs> and I and like sort of crumble and break. There's been a few moments in my career uh, with different kinds of events, but yeah, I think that that confidence piece is really key. Let's tap into that a lot more. Let's unpeel this onion because let's be honest, where you're currently working, it's high pressured. Um, if you wouldn't mind just explaining your role now, because it relates to all the skills, we'll tap into the skills, but let's stick to the confidence. Sports industry is high pressured. It doesn't matter if you're the athlete, let's say driving the car to you, making sure the top hospitality guests are having the best experience, the best memories in that period of time. So could you tap down what you mean confidence? I think we all know what the word means, but in a working sense in the event industry, like how do you keep that energy high and confidence high within yourself? That's a really good question. And with Formula One, it's very cyclical, as in it's race after race after race, week after week. Maybe there's a weekend gap here and there. But to be honest, every event industry has its nuances. So I've worked corporate, I've worked in the cruise industry, I've now worked in Formula One. And to, to a certain degree, there's a lot of the same key skills that you need. And that's why I've been able to bounce from industry to industry within the same event cloak, I guess. Um, so just going back one, in the cruise industry that I was in prior to Formula One, um, I just launched the largest cruise ship on the planet, having never been in the cruise industry before. And I think the reason I was able to do that without and they're obviously a steep learning curve and that was that was probably more pressure and this is why I'm bringing it up that was more pressure than what I feel in Formula One um, because of the volume of work and the time frame I was given so that was very stressful uh, <laughs> lots of late nights maybe a few tears involved um, but in Formula One it's very fast paced you like plug in you plug out of each race and it's on to the next so you have to be really on top of all of your parts of the jigsaw puzzle, because let's be real, this is a circus. It goes from country to country to country. Everyone plugs in, runs around and does their thing, plugs out and we move on to the next one. So in terms of how I keep my confidence high, I just rely on my key skills. Um, and actually, at the end of the day, um, and this is going to sound a bit cheesy, but I know that I'm a nice human and people relate to nice humans. And so when you're working in the hospitality industry, which is, you know, 
Formula One has their hospitality suites in the paddock club, which is, I'll come on to what I do in a minute. You're just meeting people and you are creating experiences for them. You are connecting with them. And people from all walks of life come into the paddock club, but they all want one thing. They want that experience for them. They want that moment. They want to watch the cars start on the grid. They want that. It's an experience and it's a feeling. And so my job is to, del- to deliver that feeling for them and help create that experience when they get there. So let's do a fun case study. What are the patterns of similarity okay. from when you were rocking in the uh, nightclubs experience <laughs> to the Caribbean cruise and F1? So just to paint the picture for a listener go, OK, I'm young to this. I can relate to the club experience, like the fundamentals. Then the Caribbean experience, which is non-sport related, but certainly was a stepping stone. And you start your own event business as well. Then working F1, like what are the patterns of similarity of skill sets or learning lessons as well in general from an event standpoint? Definitely the confidence piece is a big one. You need to be able to make decisions confidently and even if I don't know the answer, which sometimes I don't, but I'm, I know I have the confidence that I can figure it out. I know everything is figure outable. And coming back to your point on the common denominators of what it kind of it takes to be in this industry, I honestly think communication can solve anything. If you've got problem intertwined interdepartmental problems where like finance is annoyed at marketing because they've spent too much money or there's a bit of friction within departments communication can solve that when you're on site in front of clients and someone's upset about something they might not have been delivered or they thought they'd been promised communication solves that and honestly communication is the key in my opinion the key to business there's nothing supersedes it I think I don't know what do you think course like without a doubt communication is a fundamental aspect I think even in particular when there's high pressure and that was going to lead to my next point of you know I bet you with the club night experience or building those parties with students to the Caribbean you said there was pressure and F1 there's pressure like communication key but how about the fundamentals did you have deadlines with the team building a good team culture like that must be vital as well to run an event because I've done a few now and we, we've exchanged WhatsApp messages I get it now like things do not work out when you're actually in the moment and I just want you to share on that point because events isn't something where you can have the greatest plan but when you deliver it it's not as what's on pe- the piece of paper for example so just going to the fundamentals of events like to give people like guidelines is there sort of like a blueprint internally you have because you said a big statement going, I could be in any country and do a great work event. You must have your own blueprint of fundamentals so you're prepared to deliver the best experience or the best event. Yeah, and having built businesses in the past from scratch in the event industry and also on the flip side, having come into teams that don't have a lot of structure, I know the importance of having, and it sounds really silly, but literally a task to do list and having been in the industry and you only know this with experience the sort of key areas so you've got like food and beverage guest experience um operational aspects marketing um on-site tasks you have to have some sort of reference points that you need to tick things off and make sure that each of those areas has been thought about considered planned properly communicated there's no point you planning something if you're not communicating it to the venue 
or your um, your team. So communication is really key. And sometimes, especially in Formula One, because it's so fast paced and you've got teams here and teams plugging in and someone's flying straight here and another team will join them here. You've got to communicate because if I've set up the paddock club, which is what the area I look after in my Formula One journey at the moment, uh, the hospitality suite, if I'm actually not on site, so I wasn't on site in Mexico last week, but my, some of my team were, I need to communicate to them. And, you know, we've had team meetings and stuff, so that's kind of alleviates that. But I would need to communicate, right, I've asked this person to put these frames on this wall in this suite and those graphics are going on those frames for the marketing. That is the communication level. You need to be so clear. Plans, diagrams. I'm a big picture person. I'm always like pointing arrows to things on pictures, like move this TV from this pillar to this pillar. It's I like that clarity, that crystal clarity. So nobody can interpret it wrong. And there's no communication error on my part when I'm communicating what I need to happen. But in terms of the blueprint, yes, if I ever if I go into any business, and this is not even just the events industry, having really watertight processes and systems that will make a successful event wherever you are awesome and just to go to the fundamentals because i think the best questions are the simplest questions like to understand events this you this word's used a lot on the podcast like how to start a career sports industry volunteer and all like that volunteer words overused but hopefully in this case makes sense so i assume for people to understand events volunteers the best place to start because you understand the whole framework with limited responsibility, but you're understanding that processes of, let's say, let's keep things simple, the event team and then the hospitality team, you know, if we're keeping it simple, running the whole event. So could you just explain like how volunteering is a great method? Because I'll give you one fun story. I only shared this with you. My first ever volunteering was the Henley Half Marathon. And I was just, I started as a normal steward. And then three years later, I was a head steward because I knew what the steward job was over the years I could then delegate or communicate what needed to be done but if you put me as a head steward year one I'd have no idea what I'd be doing and and that's where events makes mistakes so I share this simple one because I think running events or mass participation events are a great way to get your foot in the door compared to like the F1 experience you're doing which is the elite of the elite so could you just share like that side of things of getting your foot in the door like volunteering is a really good avenue to start to get that real experience yeah and do you know what there's different industries that are super keen for volunteers and they're like yeah come at us like who can we get into work well we they want people sort of like human signposts or the filler gaps that don't need the skill to perform the duty of the job and that is a great way to get experience not only does it increase confidence it increases your contact within the industry And for those contacts, it increases their trust in you that you've seen what needs to be done. They don't have to go over this a million times and you you kind of have some sort of confidence in yourself that you know what you're doing on the event. With Formula One, however, it is so tricky. Like Even I found it tricky to break into this closed door industry. It's watertight. It's elite for a reason. And you can't just walk in and be like, hi, can I volunteer, volunteer for Mercedes? Like it does. Sometimes, yes, if you catch people on the right day for the right thing. But I think what this industry values is persistence. And yeah, I, I even I, so maybe like 37 years old, I was thinking, do I need to just volunteer? Like, do I do I need to go back? And I was like, no, Emily, you've got 20 years experience. We're not doing un- this is not this is not a thing. We're not doing unpaid work. 
no. And I almost like my ego just wouldn't let me go there. Um, but if I was younger, definitely I'd be putting my hands up left, right and center. And actually there are, there are um, companies and they're on LinkedIn and you, you just need to search for them. They do exactly that. They staff races with volunteers that want experience and they, they're the ones that have the connections with the race teams and the race teams trust them. And then it was almost like student placement. They'll place someone to help with a thing, whether that's at the races or whether it's, you know, at the team headquarters, wherever that might be. And there are companies that act as that intermediary trust, trusted partner to then put place volunteers or work experience or recent graduates in positions absolutely now let's get to the fun side like this is the reason for this podcast right so i want you to first explain your current role and then we're going to work backwards to how you broke in so explain your role to everybody so they can picture okay. it and then we'll go start right from the beginning is that cool like this will be the case study because if they get this there'll be some great golden nuggets to help people apply themselves not just in the event industry yes sports industry or yeah. even F1. So go ahead, the mic's yours. So what's your current role? Okay, so <laughs> currently I am an event operations manager and I look after our Paddock Club hospitality suites for my current company. And what that means is every race, there's the Paddock Club and the Paddock Club is usually above the gar- the team garages. So the guests can look down on the garages when they're making the pit stops and that's the Paddock Club. So in the Paddock Club, there's multiple suites and the teams have their suites. You have the Ferrari suite, Mercedes, McLaren, whoever's got the, got a suite in the Paddock Club. And then my company has a suite as well. So I organize all the event logistics for that. And that could be, and also the fan activities. So we, the current company I'm with, we do ticket plus experiences. So somebody might buy a ticket and they can add on an experience. That ticket includes that experience. And it could be a track tour around the track, um, walking down the pit lane, uh, special events um, with driver meets and greets, um, and just a fan experience, basically. And then in the paddock club, um, I'm organizing um, the suite fit out. So all the branding, the graphics, organizing just the little details the operational details like the wi-fi like making sure that when the guests arrive the suite is ready it's got all the branding in the right place um, and on site i'm kind of really my job is to host and look after the guests because they're, as i said they're there for that experience and that experience to a certain extent has to be looked after and curated by someone so i'm on the door of my suite welcoming the guests and making sure they're having a fantastic time troubleshooting, answering any questions um, and being on site. But prior to that, all the logistics of making those particular aspects of the event happen, whether that's making sure that the relevant people have done, booked in the, whichever drivers were being interviewed, making sure that I'm, like, we're collecting them in the right time with security guards to bring them from A to B, planning the route for them, all the little details that go down. Um, to that event whether it's a fan event outside the paddock club or the paddock club itself so that's what I currently <laughs> amazing now we're going to go back I'd say eight months I'd say roughly when we got connected you said right at the beginning this you like how do I break into this entry like you said this is a game plan and I would love you to the best ability with yeah. what you experience I know you're in your role now 
but now I want you to go back of that mindset of Emily. Okay, how did you break into the industry? Break it down if you can for us. Okay, so it wasn't just a straight straight line from A to B for me, like it isn't with most people. I used to have a, um, a coaching business online during the pandemic. I kind of adapted to an online business because I wasn't sure where I was going to be. I'd just come back from Australia and New Zealand after 10 years and I just couldn't really find my place. And then my first Formula One race was about 10 years ago. I went to the Monaco Grand Prix, Red Bull Hospitality, had a fantastic time. And I've kind of been a fan since then. So I'm not one of those new fans that's the Drive to Survive fans. My fan fandom sort of predates that a little bit. Um, but and so I've had different jobs and have been in, had lived a different life since um, I kind of became a Formula One fan. But then after I really wanted to get back into the events industry after having my own business for a while, I was like, right, well, I w- it's time for me to really think about this. I'm not getting any younger. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. What do I want? What do I want to do? What do I want out of life? And I was like, I really want to marry my skill set, which is events operations, with my passion, which is Formula One. And I was like, right, there must be a crossover here. Like, how can I, why can't I organize events in Formula One? Easy, right? And so I live in um, in Surrey and uh, my, my team is McLaren. So I live quite close to the McLaren headquarters. So I was literally on the internet looking for like jobs in F1 and I was applying for jobs in McLaren and shock horror, I didn't get the roles. Um, there was multiple reasons, like too experienced, not experienced enough, like all the annoying things that you hear in that washing machine of job applications. But Um, What that did for me was it made me realign my CV and really pick out my key skill sets and what I knew that I needed to sharpen up on um, to work in Formula One. I was reading blogs. I was listening to podcasts. I was really immersing myself in that industry. So when I was in front of these people, I could talk confidently and I could talk with relevant information about the industry. That's one thing that I did. But then after lots of rejections and my most common rejection was Emily your CV looks great we love you as a person but you haven't got any experience in Formula One and I was just like how how has it been like nearly 20 years of me having event experience but I don't have enough experience for that thing and I just my mind just wouldn't accept it I was like this is unacceptable to me and that fire in me was what made me not give up And so I did actually take another role because it was kind of, um, I wasn't getting the roles that I wanted and I wasn't going to settle for something that I didn't want to do. And I'd been offered, you know, quite a low salary on some jobs. And I was like, you know what? I I can't settle. If I'm going to make this move, it has to be right for me. And so that's when at my age and my experience level, I wasn't going to take the volunteering roles or the lower paid jobs that were underneath my skill set. I had to sort of stick firm in my confidence on my abilities. And that's when I took a job in the cruise industry, um, a maternity cover, just while I carried on my journey. And then I wasn't having the best time in the, in the cruise industry. Uh, so I was like, right, it's time again. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I was like ramping up the gears, like I'm doing it this time. And that's when I actually stumbled across your podcast on LinkedIn. Um, you were interviewing Tim Sylvie about, I think the title was, what attributes or what characteristics do you need to work in Formula One? And I was like, right, time to put the blinkers on again. Like, let's let's go. Let's do this. I need to immerse myself in all the things that I need to, to skill up. Right. I need to 
learn from other people what do I what what characteristics do I need maybe I don't have them like am I missing a trick here do the research get involved that's when I kind of um, I listened to a podcast and it was it was just really easy to digest like you guys are both so relatable this sounds so cheesy. I, I realized this as it was about to come out of my mouth, but I almost felt like I knew that I was going to be friends with you guys. Like I just felt that like relate relatability straight after that podcast. I like, I found it, um, Tim on LinkedIn. I sent him a voice note and introduced myself and said what I was trying to do. And then like literally I messaged you and I think it, it was on a lunch break during my car- like my cruise. We're going to break this down. I'm going to hear, my- I'm going to give you the, the reality here. I've got the LinkedIn message, but carry on, carry on. I'm going to give you my side because I think it's important because I've got my viewpoint at that period of time and to see where you are. So I hope yeah. the listeners can picture the current state. So carry yeah. on. So okay. listen to the podcast. I don't need more praise, by the way, nor does Tim, but I think this is important components of immersion yourself into it. So carry on. So you reached out to Tim, or do you want me to take control of what happened next? Up to you. I'll give you the I'll let, give you the decision. I'll, I'll lay the scene. I was like, I've reached out to Tim. We started a conversation um, on LinkedIn with him. And I was just, I was, I reached out in quite an authentic way, I feel. Um, I wasn't sort of, help me, help me. Like, you I, you need to help me. But I did say, like, what can I, can I help you with anything? I, I want to tap into your skill set. Can you tap into mine kind of thing? Like, how can I help you? I was very, I was very aware that I don't like to go on LinkedIn and just take things from people. Like, I know that I'm just Joe Blogs from down the street, but I might be able to offer somebody some help somewhere sometime. Um, so I went with that avenue and Tim and I jumped on a call, like maybe like a week later or something when his schedule permitted and we had a great chat and he offered me some great insights but then at the same time, it was it was one lunchtime and I, I just messaged you and I was like, oh, hi, Ed, I just listened to your podcast. I can't even remember what I sent you, but I, I listened to your podcast. Let me take control because I'll go through what happened. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the honest truth. When 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 Tim's podcast came out, um, I always look at my data of the likes and stuff like Curiosity. And you're one of them. You actually like that video clip of Tim's um because he he actually as much as he's an f1 he's got really good sponsorship experience like if you can understand sponsorship in f1 it's a real good skill to learn so what happened was i'm gonna actually give you a happen oh, actually, i did the first message so what happened was my linkedin strategy is when people connect with me the first idea i go on their profile check them out and with emily what was fascinating was which this is the connection point nothing related to f1 was you actually help people with burnout and i i've experienced it a couple of times and i'm like cool and i'm like well I'm, I'm intrigued of what she does with the services. Nothing F1. And this was the first message. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read it out because I think it's really authentic. I went, hey, Emily, thanks for your LinkedIn request. It's great to be connected with you on this platform. Hope life and work is treating you well and have an awesome rest of the day. P.S. Went on your awesome LinkedIn profile and I love how you aim to help people with burnout, which I've experienced myself. It's not fun. Also, on a side note, I have been, I'm based in Weybridge in Surrey. I went to St. George's Junior School many moons ago and worked in Mijana, a Lebanese restaurant, which I started at 13. Now, why have I shared this? I've shared this because like you, I started the conversation then going services. It was curiosity. And then later on, honestly, this is the same day we exchanged some audio messages and I went, look, do you want to jump on a call? So we jumped on a call on uh, LinkedIn and you're in this really dark room at the time. You called it like your dungeon. And we started talking and it was only then when we had a really authentic conversation. Did I know Emily wanted to work in F1? No. But then when she explained her journey in the whole situation, I was like, I sort of said, look, we can make this happen. Like, 
I sort of went all in and we can figure this out because, and I'll explain this from my side. When I heard Emily's experience in the event industry, it's a totally different approach to somebody starting out. There was no way, and I agree with your statement earlier that I don't think it's ego. I think it's more you're standing up to your confidence. But I'm so glad you said like you drew the line of that you weren't going to volunteer due to experience. If you have no experience and you can't perform that activity, then your ego's talking too much to think, you know, if you've got zero experience and expected to work in F1, you haven't done any reps of any life experience of events. So when I heard this from Emily, I'm like, I said, this could, this can happen. I said, I don't, I'll be honest. I said, I don't know how. I know a few people in F1 with Tim and interviewed him, but I didn't know like the stepping stones, but I knew from that we were going to figure it out. So I've shared this from my side, Emily, but, and then from that, just give people a picture. We would get on calls and the biggest thing, which I admire the most for Emily, I'm not here to praise your, your confidence or ego, but when I went on her profile, you were already commenting on other people's work in F1 a lot. Like, I mean, consistently, I would say daily, you would take the time to read a story or comment on another professional in, in a sector of the F1 industry. I'm like, well, this person is emerging with comments in an authentic way, not to build her network, just actually build the conversation. And I think that's important. It's one tip I share with anybody. If you want to work in a certain industry, you've got to comment on other people's work who were just a few steps ahead of you. And that's where you build the real authentic network. So that's my side of the story. I'm going to now jump it back to you of you applying yourself. There's a there's one element I do want to add, but I think from what I've said, would there anything you would like to elaborate for the listener of that network piece? Because that's what that period was before you applied yourself in the industry. So Mike's yours. Yeah, definitely. And having, I... Maybe I haven't fully understand, understood the power of LinkedIn until now, but I did understand that it was a place to network and it was a place where people wanted to, to connect on a business level. And I'm here looking for a business job in a certain industry. And the good thing about LinkedIn is you can see the person's face, you can see their job title, you can see their company they work in. So I was just going through connecting throwing okay I was throwing out like random connections but I was throwing out random connections of people whose content I liked or who were active and I could potentially learn from so I was reading people's blog posts I was going through their CVs thinking right how long have they been in the industry what sort of things they're doing what job titles are available and the one thing I learned in that period of time was Formula One is, and I know it's a buzzword now and everyone likes the fastest growing sport and it's it's cool, it's trending. Um, there are so many different industries that plug into Formula One. It's not just the teams. It's not just the names you see on TV. There's so many companies and businesses and industries that plug into that beast. It's like this huge octopus that, you know, probably any any industry has a link to Formula One, whether it's catering, whether it's printing, whether it's um, entertainment. There's so much that goes on in, in the paddock and the paddock club and, and the, the circuit. Travel, like there's so many parts of it that people can apply their skill sets to. So yeah, anyway, so I was immersing myself on LinkedIn, commenting on people's posts, almost to try and not gain um, visibility, but I wanted the right people to see me. And I was making authentic comments. If I wanted to comment and I said, that was cool. Or I liked how you said that. That's what I would do. So that's kind of 
where I was at with that. <laughs> and one thing which I think was vital with the conversation you had, because this isn't just the role you're currently doing, but actually you love how sport can give back. Could you talk about your nephew with Daniel Ricardo? Like, because I think for me, that was the real passion of why you wanted to work in F1. Could you just share that story? Because I think this is vital because that was a component that I think, got it written here, you didn't want to give up on your journey actually working in the industry. So could you share this little story? I think it's important and meaningful as well. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, about two years ago, my 15-year-old nephew was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And that kind of like really like shook my family. And he's in Australia, so we, we were in England. So it's very difficult to sort of connect and help and support when your family is going through such a big thing. And one of the things that we used to connect on was Formula One. And so we'd send memes to each other and like on Instagram and voice notes. And, you know, when I was, I was very, very close to them when I lived in Australia, like logistically, like down the road. And from being so far away, I could, that was a thing that connected us. And it was, it was just a really special connection that I would, that we would talk about. We would watch, send, as I said, send memes to each other. And during, so he had um, this uh, special type of cancer during COVID. So that made things even harder um, going into hospital, not having allowed to have any visitors, having to be locked down in isolation because of um, immunity and chemo and all that sort of stuff. So it was really not even only was it extremely difficult in, in a normal circumstance of going through cancer with the COVID stuff on top, it was so isolating and so lonely. Um, only one adult allowed to be in the room like at the same time so that, you know, my brother and sister had to take turns. My brother and sister-in-law had to take turns in being in the room and then doing doctor's visits. And it was just really awful. And so my family sort of jumped into action as anyone's would. And I was like, how can I do something that's going to keep his momentum and spirits up? Like, you know, mum got a letter from David Attenborough um, some friends got some cricket, Australian cricket, like stars to send in videos and stuff. And I was like, well, he loves Formula One. I literally just went on Google and I was like, contact Lewis Hamilton. Sounds ridiculous. Contact Lewis Hamilton. Contact um, Daniel Ricciardo. Contact um, Charles Leclerc. And like, lo and behold, I just went through, through the rabbit warren of email addresses and calling people. And I managed to get some like personalized videos from a few of the drivers and actually one day on my I was driving somewhere and I had my um maps up like following the route somewhere I was driving and the an email popped up and I just glanced at it and it said zoom call with Lewis Ham and I was like oh! I just pulled over and I literally was like shaking I was like oh my god I can't believe it and Lewis Hamilton and had invited him on a zoom call the next day before the Jeddah race last year and I think from then, like Daniel Ricciardo sent a video, Charles Leclerc sent a video, Lewis Hamilton had an hour Zoom call with just four of them, which just blows my mind. But it was those instances of seeing the, this uplifting spirit. On Christmas Day, Daniel Ricciardo sent him, or his team sent him a box of stuff. And it was just those really low moments that were lifted and elevated by somebody in that industry, in that sport, that meant so much to him. And it made me feel good that I was able to do it. The dark times that he was going through, it lifted his spirits and gave him something to get excited about when times were pretty dark. There were a few, uh, anyone who's been through something similar and their families, it's this ripple effect. It's, 
it's a whole bunch of people that are uh, affected by this. And that was when I kind of realized the power of this sport. And it can be any sport, say if you're a tennis fan or you're a basketball fan. But for me, I liked Formula One. He liked Formula One. I was able to create experiences within Formula One. And that's why I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to create meaningful moments in motorsport, like to help people get through tough times and to have that experience and elevate elevate their experience. So that kind of got my cogs turning. And then I started to dig away at the industry. So, yeah. So everybody, that was the hook from the call we had. That's why I had to bring it up. But that was, I was like, we're going to make this happen. And yeah. I want to if you wouldn't mind, just share some tips now because we had phone calls back and forth when you went, Ed, done some applications, waiting now. And I'm just a firm believer on this. I'm all about creating opportunities. That's what keeps me motivated, but not like worried about rejection. But I always think now the unknown period, which I'm going to explain, is the period of when you send some an application and you're waiting. That is where the stress happens. That is that moment I call the unknown period that when we start getting all oh, a bit shaky. So but if there was an unknown period, I think recruitment processes would be a lot smoother. So, but it's just part of the, the game. It's part of the process. So could you just share honestly how you coped with that unknown period? Because you're reaching out to different people. I have to shout out Tim again, because I know you had great conversations with him, which, which he, you know, he made some connections to. I need to like be authentic to the listener. When, when you build relationships and Tim nicely took the time to connect with his network it makes things more promising for people, but it doesn't work all the time. But when you build that know, like, and trust with networking, things happen. So could you just share reflecting how you dealt with that unknown period? That, And I mean, CV applications, interviews, preparing, and following up, that sort of three categories. It's brutal. There's no other way to, there's no other word. It's brutal. It's frustrating. It's brutal. It can knock, it can knock your confidence if you don't stay mentally strong with it. Every rejection is just a redirection. I was trying to really tap into that, like it's not meant to be. It wouldn't have given me what I wanted. And now hindsight, true. But I remember I was, I really wanted to work with McLaren. And I literally was back and forth with them for about three months, four months. And that's a long time. That's like a quarter of a year. And it just was misaligning and back and forth. We want you, we're not sure. And I was just like, oh, it was so frustrating. Um, but again, I've built friendships from that process. Whenever I've gone into an interview with someone, I always make sure I follow up, keep the door open. And now I'm still talking to people who have interviewed me in the past because I know they're in the industry. They're now coming to me um, some of the times to help them build partnerships with my current company. And it's just, if you don't get a job from it, you should at least come away with a connection or a friend. I'm really, I'm really, really like, hot on that you should never burn any bridges and be like oh well you didn't want me and blah blah there's a reason for it and there's a reason you didn't get the job there's a reason either it's for your benefit for their benefit and usually it works out for the best um so that interview process you've got to stay mentally strong and how I kept pushing through is every day I was doing something every day I was applying for I was finding at least two roles applying for two roles have my spreadsheet have I applied link to the job role online kept checking back in, following up when you, this is one thing a friend actually taught me who kind of works, used to work in recruitment. When you do apply for something online, rather than just spray and pray, firing off your CV and on LinkedIn, there's an easy apply, which 
I just don't know what to say about that because there's no easy application. <laughs> there's always something else that goes along with it. Once you've applied, you are a faceless human to them. They don't know who you are. There's probably a robot, an algorithm that's reading your CV before it even gets through a filtering process to a human. And what they told me, what my friend told me to do was after you've applied for every job, you call up, he's trying to, you call the HQ, you get the um, HR department's number or the person, if they're, if they're listed on LinkedIn, you say, can I speak to Joe Bloggs? Um, and then they'll put you through or put you through to somebody. And you say, oh, hi, my name's Emily. Um, I've just applied for the blah, blah, blah role on LinkedIn. I'm really excited about it. I just want to check that you got my application. And you following up, and sometimes they're like, oh, no, like, let me just hang on. Let me just um, have a look. And then your name is then on their mind. So when they find your application, you've bothered to follow up that you actually really want this job. And you're not just firing away random applications. You're excited. You've called to find out your name is on their mind and their lips probably. So that really helped me. And it also it, it shows, I don't know, it just shows a bit more intent behind what you're doing mm -hmm. i was gonna say commitment yeah. to applying absolutely and last one because i it's one of the best ones i've heard as well the follow-up did you do that you did do that a couple of times i remember you got a call i said to still follow up even if it's because you get advice or tips which you can adjust for your next application so because i think that's so important as well like but unfortunately we're in the emotion of rejection where we lose our our thought because you're like you feel a failure, but you're not. But just could you just share the benefits of ringing back? And, and if they don't give you anything back, to me, that shows poor recruitment process, in my opinion. So, yeah, just could you just share the importance of following up even after rejection with that company or per HR person? Yeah, well, there were some businesses and, and companies, and I won't name any names here, but there were some um, jobs I applied for where they would try and hold you to all their brand values, whatever they are, like confidence, energy, whatever the whatever their their pillars are, and they would be holding you to those um, that their standards, but they themselves weren't operating to those standards as well, and that was a red flag for me. So I I made sure that I was really intentionally choosing. I'd be like, mm, I'm going to give this company one more go. And then if they still aren't treating me like that, then that's a no from me. Because I know that that culture on the inside was kind of permeating to outside. And cultures are really big. It's really important to me. So I had to be really confident and strong to say no to things that I thought might be a foot in the door. But actually, was it going to be right long term? Um, but yeah, definitely the follow up. So after an interview, and I know everyone does it and it's a bit of a cliche, but if you don't say to them like, hey, I was really excited about this. I, I'm, I'm really sad to receive your, the rejection email. Is there any chance you've got two minutes or someone can spare two minutes just to tell me like how I can improve for next time? It obviously wasn't, it wasn't quite the right fit. What can I do next time? Or do you have any other roles that you do think would be a good fit for me? And you just don't, you don't take no for an answer. And, you, and that shows confidence. It shows tenacity. It shows resilience. It shows that you can, even though you've been rejected, you can call up and be like, cool, obviously it wasn't meant to be really like, I'm really like disappointed. You're allowed to be disappointed when you get rejected for a job you thought you wanted. Let's just be humans here. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important. And some people will say, oh, there's no feedback. And I was like, oh, okay. But then how can you learn? 
and grow and change and, and not that you have to change if someone doesn't like something about your CV it's maybe not the right um skill fit not personal personal fit and one thing that I with onto your point about rejections is you and this is difficult to do you need to not take it personally they don't know you they don't know you as a person in two or three interviews or whatever it is they don't really know you so you have to obviously present your best self but they like if they're good interviewers they'll get to know you a little bit but really they don't know your life they don't know you as a human being so you can't take it personally and you just have to keep going that resilience to keep going when everything's circling around and you might have four, five jobs you've applied for and you're in that process of like you've, you're on second interview, third interview, but you still have to not cling on to the, put, hang all your hopes on those. And you have to keep moving forward with finding new jobs, making new connections. Don't stop the momentum because the momentum is what builds that energy around you and that excitement. If you get to the point where you're like, oh, I didn't get it again. And you've got no other prospects on the table. Your energy's down. You're not going to come across good on interviews. People want what other people want. So if you're if you're in a, in a in a in a phase where you've got you're talking to three big teams and you're talking to three people and you're like well I do actually have a, I'm having other conversations you don't have to say what those conversations are you don't have to say that you say I'm having different conversations with different people so do you want me or not kind of thing and you're the prize <laughs> you have to position yourself as the prize. I've got a big smile because I'm loving what I'm hearing and it's one reason why I always messaged you like. And we always jumped on quick calls. I'm not here trying to get credit, but it, that was the exact feeling or the, why I got on those calls, the momentum. Like, it doesn't matter if you're trying to create an opportunity, trying to get the certain role. Momentum's the key thing, even if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. We're getting near to you getting the role now. Like, <laughs> when was that moment when you went, yes, I'm like, uh, you know, that sort of feeling. Yeah, exactly. Just because I want people to realise with resilience, showing up, um all these little metrics of like keep being consistent with your actions it can lead to that light again like to the end of the tunnel so could you just remember when I think you messaged me on whatsapp but I just remember I was like oh, I was just like I was in like cloud nine myself and I wasn't even getting the role it just sounded so such a great opportunity as well and it sort of hit the notes of what you wanted as well which I think is important um so just explain this part and then we can go to what you're currently doing but in more practical sense yeah well I do think we probably need to rewind back into the whole washing machine job interview when I think what you really helped me with was tarting up my LinkedIn shop window <laughs> so um let's not skip that part because that is something that I've continued and it is it is a big part of like my personal brand now but in terms of being authentic online positioning yourself as a thought leader in your industry um, alluding to um, the industry you want to be in. As you said, there was nothing about Formula One on my LinkedIn page. Then we redid all the, you helped me rewrite my bio. You've, um, you helped me just reposition myself. And then when people, I was commenting, they would look at my thing and see some like Formula One cars or some tips or whatever it was. I had to sort of put on like, a racing hat for a bit even though I didn't have any experience in the industry I wanted to show people yes I did have experience in the event industry and I like Formula One and this is how I'm tying them together and that actually 
that really increased my confidence because I do know my stuff. I do know what I'm talking about in events. And I know that even though Formula One's a closed door industry, I had to prove that I, you know, proved to them that I needed to um, have some experience in Formula One. I needed them to see that I actually didn't need it. And they, they, they should want me anyway from my experience. So it was, it was kind of bolstering that personal brand. So when I was going for interviews or I was connecting with the right people, they were seeing something that was relevant and they were seeing a person that could fit into their industry and into their business and into their, their, that like plug into that lifestyle. So that was really important. And the consistency. Could I give my perspective? Yeah. yeah. My perspective? yeah, yeah. Okay. Cause I think this is a case study. You're getting like the gems here, everybody they're listening in. So, <laughs> At the time, when you clicked on Emily's profile picture, it would see like Emily coaching burnout as the banner. And that was where there was confusion. I'm like, you're commenting so much on F1, but somebody clicks who's that person who wrote the content. So I was like, and even me, like my first message, it wasn't in line. So there wasn't alignment. There wasn't the story. uh, And there wasn't that first impression so this is what I did and you laugh because we never had it perfect but Emmy loves these sort of this certain hat like it's just her personal brand hat which is meaningful so at the time it was her image and this hat and then coaching business I was like look have that image but just put a Formula One car behind so we just literally did that like was it the most prettiest image no but it did what it said on the tin I said I'm not going to get a graphic designer just get a Formula One car and put and I actually gave you a rough copy anyway. I was like, do something like this. And then you did your own because you like your sort of look. And that's cool. Then we did the bio area where it's like explaining who Emily was. And I said, look, go the events route. Say your experience. So this was the cool thing. Quote me right here if what, what I say wrong. But you said, um, I've got 10 years of experience and I've worked in events in six different countries. I went, that is Formula One in a nutshell. Like how many events a year? Quickly, how many in a, in a circuit? There's 24 next yeah. 24 next season if you can say you've done australia um america europe england like that is like a micro example and i said that to you i did say look put the countries because that means it's still in my bio and and my tagline <laughs> yeah see see like i said to her just whack the countries because when you've got country experience you're understanding culture you understand operations um in that part of the world through a few experiences but when you emerge events it's like a win-win and So we did that and then we did the main body and we just did a few tweaks. But the key thing was that head image, banner image and the six countries. And it was only later going, oh, that's six countries. I was like, told you. But at the time, (laughs) when you're you're creating your bars, I'm just trying to explain to the listener, you've got to experiment. But the key thing is have alignment of your messaging and branding of who you are. So we've ticked on that. We're not going to talk about content creation because I want to talk about that doing your first events. But the other part with personal brand, I did say to Emily, I said, look, you would have created some sort of content. So we went, do you want to do a podcast? Do you want to do a blog? And we I ended struggled up with this part, post. didn't I? I'm yeah, th- this bit. Let's, let's, carry on. We'll, we'll keep, <laughs> let, let, let's carry on this theme, but I think it's vital to what you're doing now. But I just said to her, look, you, every, and this is so true, everybody, and it doesn't matter what area of the sports industry, what industry in general, you've got to create content now. You, you are your own media company with your own personal brand. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do a weekly podcast show like I've done the last seven years, but you've got to do something that positions you in the industry of whatever it is. So I said to Emily, I said, look, so far, you're this cool person helping people with burnout, which is meaningful to a lot of people and I've experienced. But with F1, we got to position you as events. So we got to fight. Like, honestly, I said, Emily, try, 
try a reel, try a video. <laughs> Emily was great with videos. And then suddenly I said, you, you sent me a post and, and you said, should I send? I said, send it. You don't know if you don't try. And I was getting my coffee and I'm reading this on when she went live. I was like, this is really good. And I've, I've learned if you find the format, stick with it. So there's my side with sort of coach ed perspective. I'm going to now pass you to Emily of like your perspective on content creation. You said you were uncomfortable, but elaborate that more. But looking back, how vital was that now reflecting? Yeah, I mean, I did fight you on it for a, for a, a good few weeks. And I was like, well, OK, Ed, I can try it. But like, you know, and, I, and then I wouldn't try it. And But I, I'm comfortable having been a coach before. I'm comfortable online. I'm comfortable speaking on camera. But as soon as it's like about you and about your personal experiences, I was like, oh, but no one, no one like will care. Like, why would anyone care what I'm doing? I'm literally Joe Blogs down the street. I'm nobody. Um, but it turns out that people like have responded to my content and I'm not there going, I'm the best at this. And this is, you know, what you should do. Like, I know everything. That's not how I attack my or create my LinkedIn content. content. Honestly, it comes so authentically from me. And sometimes I was having my finger over the post button because I was so I was about to share like parts of my life that are just vulnerable and probably not that pretty and not that together. Um, but it was me and I was linking it to what I wanted to do or sharing my experience, which is very different from telling other people what to do and how to think. I was like, this is, this is like five key things I learned from launching the largest cruise ship in the world. Or this is what you need. This is what I think you need in the events industries to succeed, like three characteristics um, when I was sharing random stories from my event past, just to show that I've had that breadth of experience, why should you pick me to, to lead the operations for your, for your Formula One business? Oh, she knows her stuff. She's worked in these countries. She's had these crazy experiences. And life isn't just straightforward. It's colorful. It's messy. It's, <laughs> and people have like, and I was just drawing on the stories from my past experiences and sharing them online and trying to wrap them up in some sort of like tips or things to think about. Um, and that really, that's my format. But now like when you, when you are more vulnerable, people respond to that. They do. And it's, if you're authentic, like my last post is doing quite well on LinkedIn at the moment. I wrote that in five minutes on the train. I posted it and it wouldn't post because the internet on where I was on the train was so like, crap <laughs> I like got home couldn't see it because it wouldn't load and then I got home and it was like blowing up and I was like oh my god like we're gonna go through numbers now sorry to interrupt but firstly when we got the format right with Emmett and, and she just said Ed this is natural to me I said good just stick with the natural like for me I'm a different animal with this microphone in front of my face I really am um it's just my jam but when she the first one I was like yeah there, there's something good here even me it was catching my attention with a good headline, I think it's the key number one tip. And then it was the third one, which you said to me, this is blown up. And I'm going to say 73,000 impressions. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, and, and what I did with Emily, this is really, I'm being strategic here. Every one of the first 10, I would always comment meaningfully just to get the, the fire going. Because with any content, doesn't matter if it's LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, it doesn't matter the platform, you, you've got to give it a a kickstart and then and, and, and then I sort of but now I don't even have to bother like the last post the last post everybody 
322,976 impressions and 125 comments. It was the comments that impressed me the most. But I was like, I said, Emily, you've got to give me tips now. <laughs> but what I'm trying to share here, this isn't, can I just be time out here for the listener? This isn't about Emily's success or gloating on numbers. I'm just trying to explain the power of positioning yourself with content. I want to get like, hat on because if you go Ed I've done three posts and I haven't got 73,000 I'll be honest my podcast I think the most I've had is 25,000 on on certain aspects of my podcast show so don't think if you do this tomorrow it will happen tomorrow doesn't work like that but what's key is which I'm proud of Emily is one is the consistency which I had to get that that get going which you could explain why it's important but two (laughs) Also having the belief to believe in your content and share it to the world. So, Emily, I'm going to give you that back the mic on one consistency and two, you've shared the vulnerability bit already, but I think please just emphasize that because I think that's your USP of positioning yourself now as a leader in the event industry now than you were before we got connected. Yeah, I think I think tapping into the power of storytelling is really key. And I was sat there going like, well, I don't have a story to tell. Like, who the hell is interested in little old me and my life? Like, boring, no one cares. I'm not under the illusion anyone cares about me. And for me, it's not about metrics, likes, um, vanity metrics. Honestly, it's about eyeballs on my career, on LinkedIn, which is my chosen social media. And so one of my first posts, and like, there is an art to sort of creating attention and scroll-stopping headlines haven't cracked it yet sometimes I do sometimes I don't not not a, a guru on this at all but when it works it works and so I think one of my posts um was something around dating apps and I was like I've deleted my dating apps and it's not because I found a partner and my message behind that was I've got this thing that I coined as like racehorse mode when you want something bad enough you put on the blinkers like a racehorse you Silence the distractions from outside. You're not looking to the side. Racehorses are trained to go forward and only see forward. So if you take away Instagram, Facebook, all the distractions, dating apps, that was like a time vampire for me. Um, I was like, I said to LinkedIn, and this is kind of the vulnerability side of this. I was like, I want a job in Formula One. I'm putting on my blinkers, everyone, and I'm getting this job in Formula One. And even though I hadn't had it yet and I hadn't got it and I hadn't, even made any real strides in in the industry I put myself out there and I was like oh crap I've got to do this now I'm like I've told everyone and then this is that was a quite a, a high performing post and that got me that was the one that was the one that was yeah, the and, I, and mm-hmm. for me it was a story around like my dating life that I was actually focusing on my career limiting the distractions, getting rid of the, the the time vampire apps and the scrolling, because this is what I wanted. And I wasn't going to stop anything until I got it. And I think people who have followed my journey on LinkedIn, this is what maybe six months worth of content. Um, they've watched my journey. And there's something about like supporting the underdog. I don't know. People like to follow that kind of thing. And I was, I was sort of sharing my story. You can go on my LinkedIn profile and have a look at my posts, but I was being unapologetically and authentically me and not afraid to tell everyone I want this thing but I haven't got it yet and I could have at that point in time I had no idea what I was where I was going to land I could have fallen flat on my face and 
had to eat some humble pie and take a job somewhere else but I didn't I put myself out there and I was so focused on what I wanted and how I was going to get it I knew there was a belief and a fire in me that nothing nothing could derail me because I had the right skill set and the right attitude and I was going to do it and that part of that ego point was like right well I said I'm going to do it I'm going to do it now like I can't not do this and that gave me even more reason and fire plus all the other reasons why I wanted to get into the industry so yeah definitely fully believe in content creation and also I saw a post saying only one percent of LinkedIn users are content creators on LinkedIn and I was like well, how easy to step into the 1% of anything, like start creating content on LinkedIn. Now I can say I'm a one percenter. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, woo. Whoop, whoop. no, this is, this is what it's all about. And that's why I was so keen to have Emily, like, but I had to find the right time because I'm like, no, I want to enjoy the process. So could you then now share? So we've, we've explained, just explain really quickly, just to polish off this part. You get in the role, you saying yes to this role. Just can you just remember when you just put the gauntlet going, yes, for this position? I've 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 reached your Everest, I call it. You've got to what you wanted. So just to cap this off, so to the audience or listeners. Yeah. So I actually went for a couple of roles in the in the company. I didn't get the one I wanted. And so for me, that euphoria of getting a job was sh- shrouded in disappointment because it wasn't the role that I wanted. But I'm happy to have landed where I've landed because I've got the experience and I've seen behind the curtain. I've seen, yeah, I've seen behind the curtain. And I think when people tell me, I want to work in Formula One, I'm a massive fan. I was like, that's not going to cut it. You need strength. You need resilience. This industry will eat you for breakfast if you haven't got your head screwed on right. There's There's a huge turnover in this industry. And now I've stepped behind the curtain. I see why. It's fast paced. You have to adapt. You've got to be resilient. You have to push yourself mentally and physically in terms of lifting heavy boxes, time zones, flights, travel. There's a physical element to this job that I wasn't really expecting. Sacrificing your personal time. The races happen on weekends. I travel to races on weekends. I'm not working races. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, input required from your side that people don't realize they see the glitz and glamour. They see the palette club. They see the highlight reels on Instagram and how fun it is. But I'll be honest with you, since I've been in the nucleus, literally the cars are driving around me at the track. I have only watched one Formula One race from beginning to end since I started in the industry. So the reality of it sometimes isn't what is portrayed on the outside. I'm not sat there in the grandstands with the crowd with the champagne cheering on my favourite drivers. Um, I'm working. I'm putting out fires. I'm dealing with guests and making sure that they're having a good time. So there is, you know, two sides to every coin, I guess. So just on the side of fulfillment, have you had periods? And I mean, this It's probably felt like 30 seconds when you're working <laughs> away where you you're seeing the podium finishes or you see pundits literally a couple of feet away analyzing the race where you go, wow, I've done it. Like, I think this is important because if you don't have those magic moments internally, you won't have the energy to stay in this industry long because it's all about our energy level. So I'm just wondering, did you have any moments of like pinches, pinching your skin stuff where you go, wow, I'm actually here. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've definitely had a few. So just to list a couple um, with one of our packages, we take the guests who have 
bought this certain package down to the podium celebration after the race. They can be under the champagne spray and be, you know, where like all the, the your Netflix characters are with the TVs and the teams and stuff. And it was a very cool experience. And I had to take them down there um, and make sure they leave as well because they all try and run off into the paddock and escape. Um, but uh, I got to be there when Max won the world title. Um, the Singapore night race under the podium. Just like a few weekends ago, I was in the suite next to Shaquille O'Neal, who was doing a DJ set and he was sort of like not very far away from me and I was watching the crowds and it was, you get you get different vantage points that not many people are able to get or have experiences and not many people are able to see in their lifetime. One time I was just in the paddock waiting for one of the appearances I was taking up with security. I was by myself and I saw someone walking towards me and I was like, I recognize that guy. And I wasn't even thinking about it. It was dark, it was late at night. And it was Daniel Ricardo, And I was like, before I'd even realized what I was saying, I was like, oh, hi. And because I'd said hi, he came over and said hi. And it was just the two of us. And I actually got, he's my favorite driver as well. But aside from that, I got to thank him for sending that video to my nephew when and, and the box of things to my nephew on Christmas Day. And that moment, that moment for me was just like, no one, I can't really describe how, the feeling of it just to say thank you to someone who did something so meaningful to someone that means a lot to me and he had he would have no idea and I always think it's really really important to say thank you and I got to do that with the with the actual person that facilitated the thing um so yeah there's there are pinch me moments where I'm very grateful for where I am and what I'm doing and I don't forget that even though there are there's a, there's a dark side and a light side. It's those moments that pull you through. And as I said, you get to talk to people. And I've made friends now in the industry that it just it's mine. It's just their contacts and their friends now, which is great. Absolutely. Look, I've so much enjoyed this conversation. I hope the listeners are getting a better picture of the reality of working air for one. But out of interest, though, and I know you said right at the only been two months in, but reflecting, I'd say the let's be realistic, the last year, like what are you most proud of looking back from the last year with regards to where you currently are? Because normally I say what we've enjoyed in the sports industry, but you're so new to it. But actually, what are you most proud of from looking back right now of this journey? Do you know what? Like if I if I think about where I was at the beginning of the year and where I am now. I'm proud of myself because I've done it. I've put my money where my mouth is. I've walked the walk, talked the walk, walked the talk. What I'm just saying is I've put myself out there and I was focused and, and intentional and I've achieved what I set out to achieve. And I guess, like, yeah, I'm really proud of myself for following through, having the resilience and not giving up when times were hard or the disappointments had got on top of me or the job applications weren't working and, I just was tenacious and I did it. And I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm proud of myself for that. And one little activity I love them to do, because we both did this at the same time, was your habit tracker. And the reason I'm bringing that in is I think that was a real positive component. It helped me on other parts of my life, exercise for one and getting back to routines. But I think mm. looking back, I know it's hard in F1 now because the time zones, you said, Ed, it's nuts. But, wait, no, but at that period of time, it got those, as you call, blinkers. So could you talk about that? And if it's cool with you, could they? Could the listeners get a... Get a is, oh, is God, cool? yeah, absolutely. So explain it. I think it's just a cool yeah. way. To, it's like a good action step. So explain the habit tracker and um, yeah. the benefits looking back of this year. 
Absolutely. Okay. So context is in my old coaching business, um, I used to really tap into healthy habits um, and consistency. And that was one of the things that I think pushes people forward in any area of life. And so I created a habit tracker um, and there are lots of them out there, but mine was, it's printable just on one sheet. You can do it for a month. And the reason why I think these are so helpful is A, the, just the mere act of tracking a habit makes you want to do it more, which drives consistency. And B, the data doesn't lie. I think a lot of people get upset about the re- results they didn't get from the work they didn't do, but they actually don't, they can't track it. So if I, I'm staring at a sheet of the ticks and the crosses every day, of the things that I want to do to build where I want to go. And then they're, they're not like big things. They're just micro habits and they're just shifting things in your life that are changing your direct, your trajectory to point you to where you want to go. Um, only three or four things, but it could be like waking up at seven o'clock or uh, making sure you do 10 minutes meditation or going to the gym or whatever, whatever the thing is that, you know, is going to get you to where you want to be. It's happening. Lights at 11. Sorry. That was when we both had. Lights out at 11, not scrolling until like midnight and actually getting proper sleep. And um, Ed and I connected on this and we were sort of keeping each other accountable for our habits and then at the end of the month we were like sending pictures of our habit trackers um Ed didn't do so well on some months everybody (laughs) but nor did I but nor did I and it just shows that it just gives you a a reality snapshot and that I you can actually get that I think there's a link on my LinkedIn bio and it's just my newsletter so yeah you can just download them for free um but that really focused me and that I think people who like structure and need structure that really like helps them focus and it, if whatever you want to do so if it's re- make one new authentic connection on LinkedIn a day put that as a, a tracking item and then you do it or apply for two jobs you can say if you have or haven't done it so I really believe that when you're in a tough moment of your life where there's a lot of uncertainty around you especially during um, job interview that whole palaver if you can focus and you can get a structure in place for yourself that will really keep your mind in check it keeps your focus going and that's what I find even I you know I helped it I used it to help me get through my divorce like really tricky like periods in my life it focuses me and it gives me a new energy and a new direction forward so yeah I'm all about the habit trackers I need to actually restart them (laughs) absolutely so look I had to put that in because I think looking back at the whole process, that was a key component mm-hmm. and it was fun at the same time yeah. where at the end of, at the end of the month, we would, you know, take the mickey out each other. If we didn't, we're accountable for the next month ahead. But as always, I like to finish with an inspirational question. And Emily's provided bags of stories, examples, components of working F1. But if you had to knuckle it down, what three real skills now, I'm going to stick to the skill element of like starting a career in F1 like I really want to break it down a listener they've got the journey of yours but if you had to put it into skill sets which they can improve on after listening to this like what would they be well just thinking back on my journey the key things I guess that confidence piece and even for people that aren't confident or don't identify as confident you need to change that story for yourself and you need to dig deep and and find that belief because I used to tell, I used to say to everyone, oh, I'm shy, I'm shy. And it was my thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, but I'm shy. And I'm not shy. I'm actually really confident. But I had to, I had to stop that story. I was physically saying out loud, tap into my experience and be like, actually, I've done this, this and this. And even though you might not have the years I've got in the event industry, you've got something. 
either it's an attitude, either it's an energy, those things are free. They don't need experience. Um, it's you've got to tap into what you're confident, you're confident in about yourself, and you need to share that authentically. Because that is your personal brand, and that's definitely what's helped me move forward in the industry. Um, I think the resilience and the tenacity to move forward regardless. Just because someone didn't want me, and there are quite a few people that didn't want me in their businesses, cool. I'll go and find someone that does want me. And it's that resilience and that adaptability to keep moving forward in times of uncertainty and adversity. And then what would I say the last skill would be? I do think in this industry, you need to be adaptable. If you're rigid and if you if you um, have a certain, if you think in your head it's going to be a certain way and it doesn't manifest like that, you're going to struggle. Event, the event industry in itself, you need to be adaptable. Things will come up, you know, there were things that happened in Mexico with the team when I wasn't there last week and they had to adapt. The freight didn't turn up. Just didn't turn up. All the things we need for our event weren't there and they had to adapt. So you need to be adaptable in your approach, whether that's job interviews, actual running events on site, your personality and your character, like how you portray yourself. You need to be adaptable to the things that are going to come at you because there will be things that come at you. So those are my three things. (laughs) They're amazing. So just to clarify, it's confidence, resilience and adaptability. Hope people are taking notes. Emily, out of interest, how can people interact with you online? Like, where is the best place to go? Well, uh, LinkedIn is my only choice. Well, yeah, LinkedIn is my um, chosen social media. I love it, but I love building a community on there. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. And there's the link on the top of my um, my bio to my habit trackers if you're interested in grabbing those. So yeah, LinkedIn is the best way. That is great to all the listeners listening in. That LinkedIn link will be on my blog post with regards to this podcast. Emily, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening and having me on. Oh my goodness. What a phenomenal podcast chat with Emily. But actually the first person I want to thank is you. Yes, you. Listening to this full podcast. I have to say it's one of the longest. But if you are listening right now, it means I really admire you taking the time to elevate yourself, elevate your sports career development, because without a doubt, I hope now you've got a better understanding with regards to what it takes to start and pursue a career in F1. Honestly, there's so many learning lessons from this podcast. I myself will have to re-listen to it. But for me, what I enjoyed the most listening to Emily's journey is the self-belief. Without a doubt, it was so important. As much that she knew her own self-awareness of our strengths. She believed in herself with regards to her experience in the event industry where she's put in the reps, maybe not sport-related, but they are so transferable. As I said right from the beginning, working in the sports industry is a mega event industry. So you're learning so many skills along the way. And then just to highlight a few aspects that were so important, just to like really do some reminders because there's so much in this podcast which you can decode and use as your blueprint getting into F1 in particular and can I just say the motorsports industry uh, because F1 is just one component of motorsports there's other types of series different car types of races different you know there's motorcycles the list goes on I'm not really uh, 
engine guy, like, but or a motorhead, as they say. But all I'm saying is, don't just think of F1. Think of motor motorsport as an industry in general. And and finally, before I sort of decode some of the key points as sort of reminders or certain elements you should apply straight after listening to this, I actually want to take the thanks to Tim Sylvie again. He is a podcast special guest, but this whole podcast journey wouldn't be without his support to Emily and just how things are done with authentic conversations when you're networking in the sports industry in general. So Tim, if you listen to this, I'm sending you the biggest positive fist pump. And for me, this is what I think is all about when helping people get in the industry. And you are such a leader in doing that. So I'm grateful. But here are just some reminders. Like, firstly, with regards to know what you want to do. Emily knew exactly that she wanted to apply her event from a skill set perspective and then her passion F1. The second part is immersion yourself into that industry. For her, she was commenting on different LinkedIn posts, which I saw a lot of before connecting with Emily. The next thing is reading blog posts, joining newsletters, listen to podcasts like this. If you're doing that, you're doing that right now. The next step is to position yourself, really position yourself exactly the area you want to work in with regards to F1, that component it could be event industry, which is Emily, or it could be hospitality, it could be sponsorship, it could be sales, position that with regards to who you are, what you want to do in the motorsport industry or F1 for this little example. The next thing is create content, sharing your experiences or sharing insights. And then you've got to apply yourself, start conversations, build that network. And really, that's the four step process, like literally those steps just to get the ball rolling of how to start. And then when you start building those conversations, when you start applying for real roles, that's where the real work begins. Like without a doubt, it was a process with Emily and myself, like we'll get on quick phone calls just to check in on her just to keep the momentum going because that's the hardest part as I said in this podcast chat it's that unknown period of waiting for a response or receiving a rejection that's where the confidence hits home and, and that's one of the key learning lessons I've taken from this podcast learning from Emily is like really protecting your confidence I've said that a few times on this podcast show throughout the years but it's a real example here with Emily's journey that she kept being resilient but also protecting that confidence so look, I hope you really enjoyed this podcast chat. This is the final podcast episode for season seven. There will be a season eight. And thank you so much for your support. But most importantly, with regards to this podcast, with those career tips right at the end from Emily, don't forget to be adaptable in who you are and what you want to do in the sports industry. Emily's done it. That means you can too. You just got to put yourself out there and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Emily said, get into racehorse mode. And when you want something bad enough, you put the blinkers on like a racehorse. Silence those distractions and focus on what you want and the direction you want to go. 